Welcome to the TNT EdTech Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Noons with Matthew Ketchum. Today, we are so excited for our 50th episode to get Dave Burgess on. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Teach Like a Pirate, co-author of P is for Pirate, and the president of Dave Burgess Consulting Incorporated, which you may know as DBC. I am so excited to have Dave on the show because he is passionate. I've seen him on other shows such as the Aspire podcast and Vernon Wright's work and so many other places. He has a number of great books and keynotes and professional developments that he can share. He has a great newsletter, which I subscribe to and get at least weekly in my inbox. I suggest you do the same. Make sure you follow his work at DaveBurgess.com. And where can they find you at on Twitter? I think this will be an easy one, Dave. Welcome. And what is your handle on Twitter? Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to join both of you. So on Twitter, which I happen to be on quite a bit, is at Burgess Dave. So my name just flipped around to Burgess Dave. The hashtag that people often use to talk about our stuff is T-L-A-P for Teach Like a Pirate. Uh, and if you're an Instagram person, you can find me at DBC underscore INC, DBC underscore INC, INC on Instagram. Thank you so much for coming on. I just want to get right into it. Can you walk us through your journey from teacher to author to consultant and everything that you're doing with DBC right now? Yeah, so for sure, it started It started actually before teaching. My gateway drug into teaching was as a coach. <laughs> I was, uh, in fact, the first job I ever held is I worked three summers for John Wooden at the John Wooden basketball camp. Uh, it was held in Thousand Oaks, California at Cal Lutheran College. And so at a formative time in my life, I worked three summers for one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time, one of the greatest coaches of any sport of all time, John Wooden. I got to see him do his pyramid of success. I got to interact with him. I got to see how he worked with kids. I got to see how he interacted and and spoke with parents and all of that. So that was a super formative thing for me. And then my first job in a school system is before I even had a teaching credential, I got hired as the junior varsity boys basketball coach at a high school Eventually, uh, I love working with kids so much. I went back to school at night, took night classes to get my teaching credential, took a job at the school, um, and eventually became the, the girls' varsity basketball coach there, but also took a job at the social studies department and became a primarily uh, U.S. history teacher at West Hills High School, taught there for 17 years. I've heard you speak before, but I didn't hear or I forgot in the first part that you were a coach first. That very much mirrors my own journey. I was a graphic designer before, but I coached and that's how I got into the field of education. A bunch of parents came up to me and said, hey, why aren't you teaching here at the school? I said, ah, you know, it's not really for me. And they said, ah, you'd be great at it. And after hearing that enough, I started to look into it, especially when the economy tanked and graphic design was not as viable as it had been in the past. Uh, I looked into it and very similarly, I took evening courses. I subbed and did my student teaching during the day. And then I got picked up uh, by school and I started coaching as well and eventually coached at the varsity level so so cool i can really uh relate to that yeah i think there's a lot of overlap between coaching teaching you know good 
good coaches are great teachers, I think, and great teachers know how to coach their kids. And so there's a, there's a huge overlap between those two professions that go hand in hand when done well. And so I learned a ton of stuff uh, from, from coaching. And the thing is, it's, you have a very, uh, talk about an authentic audience. You're actually teaching skills to kids and coming together. And then it's going to be tested because there's going to be a game and there's going to be another team that you're competing with. Talk about a real world situation that you have to prepare for, right? We always talk about preparing kids for the real world and, and coaching. You have the ultimate example of this. You're going to go into competition with another team that's trying to defeat you. And so your coaching and what, how you've worked with your kids gets tested. And you get to build that community and you get to experience winning, losing, and all of these obstacles and challenges. And you realize that what you're doing with kids goes far beyond just teaching them uh, you know, the, the skills of the sport, but it's teaching them things about life about uh, overcoming obstacles and challenges and how to deal with defeat and all, all these personal interactions and egos that you're trying to weld together. And all those things are going to, uh, can be super effective when used in the classroom as well. How would you say those experiences, the teaching, the coaching experiences uh, prepared you for what you're doing now on the business side? I think, I think that it, Part of what's happening now, so I've always embraced a, how can I use that mindset? Always looking around the world and saying, how, what's going on? How can I use that? And the principle of living wide and reading wide. And so, like for example, if you were to look at Teach Like a Pirate, um, there's not one single education book referenced inside of it. Not a single one is referenced inside of the book. Not because I don't like education books. It's just that that's not where it came from. It came from the outside drawn in. So was my background in a wide array of fields, entrepreneurship and marketing and different performance things like working as an MC for a while, working as a magician, working as a street performer, doing all these different things kind of came together and informed what became the Teach Like a Pirate kind of style and some of the things in my book. And so that's something that I think has helped us in business, too, is that, you know, a lot of the best education books are not in the education section. You know, so how can we take some of these ideas from outside of education and bring them into what we could do? What are kids into outside of school? How can we bring that inside of school to engage them? It's like a top secret category of hook, right? And so we're always trying to get, we're always trying to get kids engaged by what we want, like our content. But maybe what we could do is spend more time taking our content and tying it to what they're already engaged in. And so that's kind of like a little secret category of hooks. And so these are all principles that I think helped me in business too. Um, and, and this ability to deep dive, or excuse me, to dive deep into subjects. You know, I was a basketball coach. I would dive deep into whatever it was I was trying to implement with my players and really read everything I could about it. Same thing in teaching. If I was going to study uh, you know, a new subject in, in history, we would dive deep into it and learn everything that we could about it for me to prepare my lessons. And then in business, uh, you know, I don't have a business degree. I don't have uh, any background in classwork and publishing, and yet uh, Shelly and I, we run a multi-million dollar publishing business. Well, how do we do that? Because we went, we, we dove into it deep, read everything we could on the subject, find out who knows what we need to know, and let's connect with them, right? And so it's kind of this idea that I think I see more in the world right now is you don't necessarily have to have a degree. A kid doesn't necessarily have to have a degree in something. If you want to learn something, hey, jump, and kids are great at this. They'll jump on YouTube and learn it, right? They'll, they know how to dive into stuff and find information. And so one of our jobs as teachers is to try to 
help them pursue things that they're passionate about and help them help to uh, provide them with the pathways and the resources to find their own skills and their own things that they're looking for in the world. Beautifully said. You, you said so much in that that segment that I want to impact. I definitely full-heartedly support what you're saying with tying things to the interests of students and finding people to support you in whatever it is you want to do. So I did the very same thing when I got into education. I learned that mistake from failing at it with graphic design. I didn't reach out to these experts. I was very insular. And so when the market crashed, uh, so did my career. It was very hard to build a PLN and to get connections at that point unless I wanted to move and relocate. And that was something I deemed I really didn't want to do with my family. I love California and I wanted to stay here. And I didn't want to commute or move to the Bay Area because it's so pricey over there. I wanted to stay in the Central Valley. Um, I also liked how you talked about not having all of these citations and following like this standard stereotypical model, not to say those things are bad, but that's not what this book is about. That's not what you're about wholeheartedly. Uh, you're about amplifying voice, connecting people and doing what's best for students. And I love how you have quotes here at the beginning of these chapters in your book, Teach Like a Pirate. I'm on page 83. Uh, you mentioned hooks. And I had this quote pulled from Sun Tzu, where he says, do not repeat the means of victory, but respond to form from the inexhaustible. I love that quote. It really resonates with me. It makes me think of uh, his art of war and doing battle. And that's how I approach life. It, it, it's so important to battle against challenges and to overcome. And I love how you've done that. You just got out there and you did it. Uh, what does that feel like exactly right now, having had these seemingly insurmountable challenges that you've overcome? I think it's, I think you have to kind of leap at opportunity when it comes your way. This is something, you know, when I first signed up to do a teach, I was teaching in my classroom. And when I first signed up to do a teach like a pirate workshop, my department chair came to me and said, Hey, would you like to do one of these workshops? I just got put on the professional development committee. And I said, yeah, sign me up. I signed up to do a full day workshop eight in the morning till three in the afternoon. My first teach like a pirate workshop was all day long. I did not have a workshop when I signed up for it. I did not have anything written down. I had nothing organized. I had nothing pulled together, but the opportunity came to me and I said, yes. And so basically the way I describe this to people sometimes is I, I jumped out of the plane and built a parachute on the way down. And now with a, with a date on the calendar, with a deadline, I was going to be standing up in front of my peers for eight hours, basically seven hours and, and delivering uh, this workshop. I had, I had to get to work. And so I think that that's a, a problem that a lot of people have is they want to wait for the right time. They want to wait till their, till their quotes ready, right. To grab that opportunity. And that's not the way it usually happens. You grab the opportunity and then you get ready. And so taking that leap can sometimes feel risky, but if you don't take that leap, it's never going to get done. If you wait for the timing to be perfect, it's never going to be, there's always going to be an excuse you can make. And you just have to, you have to take that jump as, as Tara Martin would say, you have to cannonball in, 
right? You have to cannonball into those opportunities in order to make your splash. And so I think, and part of this is is kind of disruptive, is we looked at the publishing industry. I was offered a traditional publishing contract. I read the contract, and what I tell everyone, I, I say, you know, the only thing that was missing to me was a ski mask and a gun. I couldn't believe that people signed these things. And so after doing a ton of research, we decided, hey, we didn't need to sign this thing. We formed our own publishing company, and we just published Teach Like a Pirate right from the laptop at the kitchen table. Right off the kitchen table from our house is where we published the book. And by the way, that's still where we run this business. We run it, uh, you know, this we've been on the Inc. 5000 for fastest growing companies, in the, privately held companies in the United States, two different years. And we still run the business from the kitchen table off laptops. And so... Uh, again, you don't have to have a business degree necessarily. Of course, if you, that's not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to get one, but you don't have to have one in today's world. And so you're looking for, when you see an industry that's based on an outdated model, that means, that means it's time for it to be disrupted. And so we thought the publishing industry was based on an outdated model, so we disrupted it. That's what I love about what's going on in education is a lot of people think that education has been based on an outdated model for too long. It's time for it to be disrupted. And then now last year, we, we didn't get to choose disruption. Disruption chose us, right? We had a, a global pandemic hit us. And now teachers who have been flying comfortably in their planes were pushed out the door and had to build their parachutes on the way down. And in, in the midst of that disruption, you've seen unbelievable collaboration and connection and innovation and creativity. And yes, there has been tragedy. Yes, there has been a heavy layer of trauma on top of everything, but also, I've seen teachers embracing this opportunity to create something, hopefully, that when we come out of the pandemic, that can be better for students. And so I love that spirit of innovation, connection, and collaboration. With that innovation and being in these times of distance learning, what, what advice do you have for the teachers to increase their student engagement in distance learning? Well, so one of the things that I talk to them about, especially if I have them in a, a, a virtual you know, virtual workshop or virtual, virtual keynote is I will do the workshop for them, the keynote, which will, you know, it could be like an hour long or something like this, where I am talking to them in a Zoom for an hour and just going off uh, and doing as my closest approximation as I can to what they would receive, receive from me in a live uh, setting, right? And then they'll say like, oh my gosh, like this, like, I I can't believe that an hour has passed. Like, how is that possible? And I say, okay, well, let's go back and talk about this. We have to embrace a new skill set now as educators. And one of the new skill sets is that we have to learn how to express energy and charisma uh, through a two-dimensional screen in a virtual setting. And so I talked to them about, what did, what did you see me do? Hey, I am, I am using intonation, inflection. I am using speed of delivery in order to uh, – in, to, uh, to emphasize emotion during certain parts of it, right? I'm moving in and out of your picture, like moving forward and back and getting closer to you and bringing my hands into the screen and then pulling them back slowly and doing all these things to try to create a three-dimensional element to what's happening, right? And then uh, I can move, I can close my screen off. I can, I can re return back. I can take objects from off screen and bring them on the screen and build some curiosity and some mystery and all these things. See, the problem is I see lots of teachers who are very charismatic and enthusiastic and passionate when they're in front of a live audience of kids, right? But then when they get in front of a two-dimensional screen, it's not just the screen that becomes flat. They become flat too. Their personality, their, their, their affect becomes flat as well. 
And so again, we can't expect students to be passionate about things that we're not passionate about, enthusiastic about things that we're not enthusiastic about. And so we have to embrace this new skill of how can I be charismatic in a virtual setting? Okay, so that's part of it. And then other then there's other things that we can do is we can look to how can we amplify more voices? So maybe there are students in a face-to-face -face setting who do not feel comfortable uh, raising their hands, do not have the anxiety around participating openly in class. Maybe they have, uh, they're a little slower to process. Now, a face-to-face -face classroom is often overwhelmed by the fast processors and the extroverts, right? But we have a whole layer of students who are either introverted, maybe have some anxiety issues, or maybe just a little slower to process stuff. They have incredible things to share, but they get kind of overwhelmed in that, in the, 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 the rigmarole of the classroom setting. Well, now through technology and through virtual means, remote learning, we have ways to amplify all these voices. We have ways that they can contribute. And so I think that's one of the, another one of the positives come out of this is that now we have students who maybe um, had tons to say, but weren't saying it. Now we can empower them through technology to be active participants and collaborators in class at a higher level. I also think it's a great opportunity to provide choice. So not all assignments have to look the same anymore. If the students are at all together with us with the same set of resources, we have students in different places, and why, why does their assignment that they turn in have to look the same? Why do, they have to be, why do they have to go down the same path on their projects? They don't. We can provide more choice and voice in what we're doing, allow more opportunity for passion projects and genius hour type of activities, and allow them to pursue things of their interest, and be more concerned with the learning, less concerned with how they show it. So here's what I want you to know, but I'm not going to tell you how you can how to demonstrate your knowledge. You have all this menu of options that you can choose from or come up with your own of, of a way to demonstrate your knowledge. So I think these are some of the new opportunities that uh, this has provided us. Where where did the pirate come from for your first book, Teach Like a Pirate? Why why did you center on that theme? Well, I, I so I when I created the workshop, I knew I, ha I knew I wanted to have a theme. I wanted to be able to model and demonstrate what I do in my uh, classroom in the workshop. Like I wanted teachers to feel what it was like to be drawn in by the ideas as if they were the students. I wanted them to experience on a firsthand uh, basis, like what it was like to be in a Teach Like a Pirate style classroom, right? And so I didn't want to just talk about it in some theoretical way. I wanted to actually treat and I have them experience what it was like to be a student and, and have these hooks done to them, right? And so pirates appeal to me because pirates are unconventional. They're willing to reject the status quo. They're willing to sail into uncharted waters with no guarantee of success. They're risk takers, rebels, mavericks. And so I wanted to embrace that spirit of being a pirate. Plus pirates are known for having hooks. So there was a little play on words with the hooks that was being brought into it. And then I created an acronym and I knew, you know, so I looked at the P-I-R-A-T-E of, of pirate and try to make an acronym. I knew I wanted to talk about passion and enthusiasm. There the P and the E were sitting at the beginning of the words, like the cornerstones of it, which I thought was uh, fitting. And I knew that building rapport with kids, relationships and rapport with kids is kind of the heart of teaching. Well, there the R was sitting in the center of the word. And so I never looked back. I did the workshop that summer as Teach Like a Pirate and uh, uh, that's the way I've done it ever since. And cause I mean, if you think about it, it's a lot of pressure. If you write up a workshop description that says that you're going to teach teachers how to create a wildly and outrageously engaging classroom that has students knocking down the walls to get in, well, you better have a pretty damn good workshop then, right? Like if you're going to build yourself as the engagement person, you better have a pretty engaging workshop or they're not going to be, they're not going to see you as someone that can speak to them on that topic. And so I think that was 
that was kind of the, the origin of it all. That's a beautiful story. I remember hearing you tell Vernon write that same story, and it's very impactful because not only is it real and authentic, it, it's so passion filled, and I loved how everything seemingly fell into place. It was really like fate. <laughs> <laughs> like you talked about the P and the E uh, already being there, passion and enthusiasm. Uh, those are things you need. And I think those were the big takeaways from your book, Teach Like a Pirate, for me. Also with thematic teaching. I know my very first year in teaching, it was kind of rough. And I got this great unit that had some PBL elements in there. And I acted out the whole hunger games we did this in class we gamified the whole the whole thing so as we're going through the book we're having challenges that are just like challenges in the book non-violent of course (laughs) so that so (laughs) i I did put my own spin on it and it was great and it killed and each year i made it better and better and better and kids all around the school knew if they had me, we were going to have this awesome Hunger Games unit. And they waited all year for it. It was like this instant hook that got them in. It's like, hey, just wait till we do this. You've heard about that, right? They're like, yeah, all right. So uh, I had them from day one or actually before day one. And I think that's where many teachers want to go, but they may not know how to do it. How do you encourage uh, teachers that are a little more shy or a little more rigid? Maybe they've been teaching in their bubble and now during this time of disruption, they're ready to try something new, whether it's thematic teaching or working with tech. Uh, What words of advice do you have for them to try this new thing? Yeah, so first of all, what you did is a perfect demonstration of one of the key tenets of Teach Like a Pirate, and that is Don't just teach a lesson, create an experience. Lessons are easily forgotten, but experiences live forever. So you wrapped an experience around your content and and that's something that they'll never forget. Like if you see them 10 years from now, they'll be talking about what you did with the Hunger Games and those reenactments of that experience, right? And so when we can take our content and say, here's my content, not good enough. How do I make it come alive? How do I make it memorable? How do I create an experience around that? That's one of the key tenets of Teach Like a Pirate. As far as teachers who maybe are feeling uncomfortable with this, well, first of all, all progress is found outside of your comfort zone. So if you're never uncomfortable as a teacher, then you're not growing. We talk to kids about this all the time. We talk about having a growth mindset, right? We, you know, a kid comes up to us and says, I'm not good at math. We say, whoa, whoa, hold on. You're not good at math yet. Right. Or if a student right. came up to us and said, hey, um, I'm not comfortable speaking in front of the class. It's just never something I've felt uh, comfortable with. We would never look at that kid and say, oh, I totally get that. That's a thing. Just go sit quietly in the corner all year. Don't worry about it. Of course, we wouldn't say that. Right. We would work with them. We would build their confidence level. We would find you take the, the closest, smallest approximation of the skill that we want them to be able to accomplish and work on that and have, have them develop some momentum and some confidence. Right. And then eventually we would get them to the point where they could feel comfortable uh, speaking in front of the class. And so that growth mindset that we want our students to have, we have to have that growth mindset ourselves towards what we do and our skill set as teachers. And so I think that's important to know. And also a lot of the hooks that are in Teach Like a Pirate don't require you to be um, a somersault cartwheel, you know, run up and down the aisle style teacher like me. There's lots of things in there that are just a very small shift in what you do 
in order to draw that, you know, that mystery, that curiosity, that buzz, that anticipation, and draw students in a little tighter uh, uh, and become a little more connected to what you're doing. And so I think that's one of the myths of Teach Like a Pirate is that, um, and, and I'm partially responsible for it because if you see me do a live presentation, it's kind of wild and I'm just, you know, speaking 100 miles, 100 words per minute and um, it just going kind of crazy, right? And so some people think that's what you have to do to teach like a pirate, but actually if you were to look at the lessons that are in the book, if you actually were to look at the strategies, the hooks, many of them do not require that at all. That just happens to be my style. And that happens to be how I present a keynote, how I present a workshop, but that doesn't have to be how any particular person teaches. And I think this that's an important thing is that if anyone is trying to uh, sell you a system or a particular way of teaching, as better than anything else, then I think that's a problem. And now, now Scott, I know that you're into the martial arts, so you have a background in the martial arts. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote about this in the book, uh, Bruce Lee, and I, I have a section called Classroom Kung Fu, where Bruce Lee was trained in a very kind of um, formal system of Wing Chun Kung Fu, and then quickly, as he progressed and kind of looked at it more in a philosophical way, he realized that a lot of these people get so invested in their system that they will then reject things which are effective, but just not a part of their system. Like someone will, will show them an incredible kick and they'll say like, oh yeah, but that's like Taekwondo, I do karate. Or they might, or someone will show them a strike from karate or a hold from, you know, jujitsu or something like this. And they'll say, oh yeah, but like, um, that, that I, I do Wing Chun Kung Fu. I'm sorry, that's you know that's not something I'm gonna. Well, but wait a second, it's effective, so you should incorporate it into your style. And so he created this style, Jeet Kune Do, which was like saying like, hey, I'm not gonna have a style. My style is gonna be fluid. My style is gonna be I'm gonna take the best out of all of the different systems based solely on one thing, their effectiveness in actual combat, right? And I am gonna create this new style, which is not really a style which is basically taking the best of everything. And even he spoke about the fact that he was nervous that after when he was like, if he were to pass away, which unfortunately he did too early, he was nervous that his followers would formalize his style, right? When it was never meant to be a, a, one particular style. And so that's how I look at Teach Like a Pirate. If someone is telling you Teach Like a Pirate, you have to do a very a certain uh, prescriptive thing. Like, hey, you have to dress in a costume if you're going to teach like a pirate. Well, then they don't understand Teach Like a Pirate. That's one possibility of something you could do to engage your kids. But it's your strength, your talent, and tapping into what students are interested in at that particular time in, in the moment. And what you're, you know, how you can best teach in order to create your particular style that's going to be most effective with kids. So I have a very much of that kind of Bruce Lee, Jeet Kune Do philosophy of teaching. Let's take the best of everything. Let's not reject something because it's not our style. Something like UFC, uh, even if you're not a, a big fan of, of the violence or uh, things that take place there. Essentially, when it started, you had all these different styles competing. And what you have now is really a blend with MMA because it takes the best of each of these styles. And I think Bruce Lee was really onto that. And then relating that back to teaching, you're absolutely right. There's not a one size fits all. And there's always room for growth always 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 so uh when i spoke with anita archer she's been 
in education for 35 plus years. And she says she's still learning things, which amazed me. I would think somebody like you or her would be maybe a little more set, especially with the level of success you've attained. But no, because you've really modeled and believed in the model that if you're not growing, you're you're dying in a sense. Stagnation is not good. You have to kind of disrupt. And you do that with uh, your workout as well. I know we've spoken about this. Uh, let's touch on that for a little bit. What, what do you do to stay fit and kind of keep achieving and pushing past boundaries? Yeah, so this is, I've struggled with a long history of injuries. So I was a basketball player primarily as a uh, young kid and went to college to play basketball, then had a series of injuries. I had a very early hip surgery and a very early knee surgery that sidelined me. And I struggled and basically wasn't able to run or participate in something like basketball for over 30 years. Um, from the middle of my college time all the way into my 50s, I couldn't run. I, you know, every time I would try to get more uh, into something like running or something like that. I couldn't do it. And then at the age of basically, I think about 52, I started with a very easy entry point. I, I was walking my dogs every night and I would say, hey, you know what? I think maybe I could run to the corner and then I'll keep walking. So I'd run to the corner and then walk a little bit. I think I could run to that next street light and I would run to the street light. And pretty soon, maybe I was running 10% of my walks with the dogs. And then over the next several weeks, well, maybe I'm running 20%, maybe 30%. Pretty soon, I'm running, I'm running as much as I'm walking. And finally, on October 24th, I was 20, what would it have been, 2019, maybe 2019, I ran for the first time in over 30 years, I ran a mile. <laughs> now, that seems like nothing for most people that are listening. But for me, at that moment, it was a huge accomplishment. And I only got there by taking very small, easy steps and, and, and growing little by little. And then pretty soon started to grow a little bit from that and then running 5Ks and 10Ks and then saying like, hey, you know what? Uh, I don't think I can run every day. Maybe I need to cross train. So started to work in things like the Peloton. So I run a day, then run a, ride the Peloton a day, run a day, run a Peloton a day. And then quickly realizing, you know what? I can't even do that every day. I need to have a recovery day every week. One day a week, I, I go six days a week. One day I have to recover. I have to let my body process the adaptations and recover. And so I think there's some, some key points for learning and for teaching with this too is what do we want our what do we want the kids to be able to accomplish and do and then what are the what are the entry points what is the the place that we can allow, allow them to create some momentum and create some success and so rather than having them be overwhelmed let's create easy places of entry for them to to get involved in what it is that we want them to get involved in and let them build that momentum and grow and develop and get, get that confidence and then we can take them to higher and higher levels that's certainly what how it happened for me with running and exercise and fitness so with leveling up and going higher and higher, how do you do that when you've reached a level of success reached by very few? I think it's always about trying to find the next goal and knowing that, you know, and um, I, I just recently discussed this, uh, following your energy. And so for me, life is a matter of following your energy. And it's so like, what is it, what is it that you want to do when all of your work that you have to do is done, okay? And so what is it that you can't wait for all these things that you just absolutely have to do to be finished so that you could really get to this thing over here that you're excited about? 
and then the process of building a life where you can spend more and more of your time doing the, the main, the main, your main time working on those things you're excited about. And when something no longer excites you, finding that next spot where your energy is flowing to. And so for me, it went from that coaching and it flew, it flew into teaching. And then it became about the presenting and amplifying my voice and my message and trying to get my message to spread. And then it became about the book and spreading the book and all that. And then it became, I reached this spot where, okay, now it's no longer about spreading my message. I feel like I've written my manifesto. I've done my thing. And now how can I amplify other voices? And that's where the publishing company comes in with what I do with Shelly and Tara and Wendy and Marcel and all this is that now it's a matter of like, uh, you know, so like I'm not as concerned about Teach Like Fire right now. I don't check my rankings anymore. I don't, you, you know, you'll be hard pressed to find me tweeting about my book. But what you will see me do is trying to amplify the voices of other people and, uh, and share their messages. And so that's where my energy is now. And so what's next, we'll see. But it's always kind of trying to examine and saying like, hey, what is it that I'm excited about? What is it that I can't wait to do? And how can I uh, build a lifestyle where I can do more of that? I think that's beautiful. And I love the community that you've built with DBC. And Matthew and I are blessed and honored to have met many authors from DBC and hope to meet many more. And every single one, and Matthew can attest to this, back me up on this, they've been absolutely great. These are people that have hung out with us and been incredibly generous. Wouldn't you say so, Matthew? Yeah. Do you go through any training with the authors, uh, with your publishing company? Because they all come in with that enthusiasm with sharing those memorable experiences. Is there some kind of DBC training that you do for those authors? Well, so first of all, part of it is in the selection process, right? And there's, by the way, there's so many, um, a lot in our community that are the same, we feel, and that we're very, feel tightly connected to and feel that we're a part of the DBC family, whether they have a book with us or not. But then also, obviously, we're attracted to choosing people that have that kind of personality and, and that community building spirit. And so we're, look, we're looking for people who are prolific sharers and are connectors of people and builders of community. And so I talk to authors about this all the time. Don't try to just go sell your book. Try to spread your message. Build a community around your message. Be an authentic member of that community. Be a prolific share within that community. And then the beautiful thing is that community will turn around and help you. And so there's a great spirit of reciprocity in the universe. When you help people share and build communities, those communities turn around and help you. And so we try to uh, um, tap into that as, mo as best as possible. And then we do, all, like every uh, person that wants to write for us, they hear either Shelly or me give them you know, the seven things that we look for with um, manuscripts and projects and how we like people to write and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, and then again, we, don't, we look at the book as the start, not the end. Some people write a book and then want to go and do the next thing. We're like, no, no, no. The book is the start of the conversation. Now it's a matter of connecting with your readers and building a community of your readers and inspiring, supporting uh, that, that, those readers and, and providing them what they need to then be able to implement your ideas. And so uh, that's kind of a, a different way, a, kind of a different spin that we have on books. If you don't write a book and go do something else, the book is just a start. I love that. And I I would say they really take that to heart. Uh, there are so many authors, as I had mentioned, but some that really stand out to me would be uh, John Carippo and Marlena Hebern, 
Matt Miller, uh, Tara Martin, and Tisha Richmond. And there are many, many more, of course. I could go on and on. Uh, but, wow, you have some heavy hitters. And I wanted to, to back up uh, just because Matthew and I both had a great shared experience with a couple of your authors, uh, John Carippo and Marlena Hebern. Do you want to tell them a little bit about that experience, Matthew? Is it the one where we went to visit them? Yeah, where we went to visit them. Yeah, so uh, we're big fans of the Edu Protocols book, and there was a author signing down in Fresno, so just a couple hours south of where we're at. And so we went down there, and they, we, we, I think we're just so big of fans, so we kept staying there at the bookstore, and I think they seen that we were there to the very end, and so they were really gracious and nice to us, and they invited us. Uh, they were going out to eat to a barbecue place, but it was one of the, some of the best conversations that we got to have, and they invited us with their their families were you know joining them and they included us with them and their families but it was some really great conversations and good experiences with them oh yeah they're fantastic and so like i, I love what one of the things that john says is that if you buy edge protocols you know book one or two what you also get is lifetime tech support from from john and a lifetime resource where you can you know connect with John with uh, Marlena and always get support for what you're doing in the classroom. And, and that's a perfect example of a project. So we like projects that um, change practice, not just theory, not just someone from outside, you know, if it hasn't been involved in education for a long time, talking about uh, a research study from 15 years ago. We like practitioners and people who are actually out there doing this stuff. And one of the things that we ask ourselves hey, what is someone going to do different next week after they read this book? Like, we want someone to read a book and say, like, oh, I think I'm going to try that Wednesday. We like books that are actually going to change practice. And so, like, if you look and say the Edge of Protocols uh, hashtag, you'll see people are, people are doing these things. They're using these protocols successfully with their students. And so, you know, that we love that about um, that book and a lot of our projects. I, Dave, I just have to ask you, have you been to the pirate store in San Francisco? I don't know that I have. I've certainly been to, to, to several, but I, I'm not sure if I've been to the one in San Francisco. I will be in San Francisco this spring, though, uh, in April for probably 10 days. So is that a place I need to visit? It is. So I think you would really like it. It's called 826 Valencia, and that's the actual address. It's a, it's an after-school creative writing nonprofit. And to raise funds next to their creative writing studio, they have an authentic pirate store. But it's like lard. It's, it's, it's real hooks. It's glass eyeballs. It's amazing. <laughs> well, I'm there. Come April, I'm gonna ch I'll check it out. No, that's really cool. And stand on the topic of uh, DBC authors, you have some books that are coming out. One by our friends Catherine Goyette and Adam Juarez. Uh, they're coming out with the complete EdTech coach, uh, an organ uh, sorry, an organic approach to supporting digital learning. I'm so glad that you're able to highlight the work they're doing. They've just done so much for not only their local ISTE affiliate, uh, CVQ, they have a chat uh, that goes every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, for that CV Tech Talk. Make sure you check that out, hashtag, of course. Uh, but they've done so much for the state and beyond. Uh, when I saw them at ISTE last year, 
they were literally just getting out of the car. Uh, they gave me a hug real quick and went in and they were going to present and they were presenting all day. They just give so much. They love what they do. How did that relationship come about? Yeah, so we, we've met them. Uh, I've met them face to face, but also many times via social media. A lot of our authors, we get connected with first via social media. Maybe I see them somewhere on the circuit, but a lot of times it is social media. And, um, you know, I just love their spirit and their positivity. And like you said, their willingness to connect and collaborate with others and to share. And they have such a fantastic way of connecting with people. And this is something that I think that, like, for example, Matt Miller is really great, great at too. Even though uh, they're all fantastically skilled at ed tech and ed tech integration in schools, they never make you feel like uh, like it's something for you to be ashamed of if you're not there yet, right? They always right. think that they're, they're learning too, and they're very self-effacing and very um, humble, and they're, they can make you feel like, oh, you know what? I got this. It's okay. And so that, that approachability, I think, is super important, and I think it's something that both Catherine and, and um, Adam have absolutely in spades, and we are pumped about this book. It'll probably probably be released in October, and we're we're really excited to get this in the hand of edtech coaches everywhere. Yeah, and as a new edtech coach, uh, I just got into the role this year, and especially during this time, right where everything's being disrupted, uh, I need some help. Even though I'm very skilled with edtech, this position's new. My responsibilities are changing. It's like I'm a first year teacher all over again. So I need all of the help I can get. So I've been waiting and I was blessed enough to be able to preview a copy and it is solid gold. I can officially say I agree with it 100%. Uh, it's going to help me out and it's going to help out others too, especially right now. So I want our listeners to go check it out, especially if you're an ed tech coach, but even if you're not, there's enough ed tech nuggets embedded in there that are going to help you out. And you can always gift it to an ed tech coach. Uh, I love that about DBC books. They're always affordable, easy to get your hands on. And there's nothing like a good book as a great gift. Uh, I know I treasure the ones that I received my my shelf is overflowing right now. I need to create some more space to fit some more books on there right now. Uh, I absolutely love it. Let's get into your latest book right now at the time of recording, Unpack Your Impact. Can you talk about that one a little bit? Oh, and we are so excited about this book. So as we're recording this, it's the 15th of September, and this is the date that we dropped it. It's been in pre-release. It was the number one best. Uh, new release on Amazon in three different categories. Um, and so it's called, it's by Naomi O'Brien and Lanisha Tab, both incredible educators, primary educators. Um, and where, where you, you'll most connect with them is on Instagram. So the, Naomi is read like a rock star on in, Instagram. And Lanisha is apron underscore education on Instagram. They're a fantastic follow. They have uh, unbelievable resources and teaching materials and curriculum that they've developed. And then this book is called Unpack Your Impact, How Two Primary Teachers Ditched Problematic Lessons and Built a Culture-Centered Curriculum. So with the increased focus 
the necessary and essential focus on anti-racism, equity, and a more culture-centered curriculum, more culturally responsive teaching. This is the book for, you know, it's, it's what I love on the cover of it. It has a bunch of the traditional craft projects that you'll see in primary education kind of crumbled up, coming out of the backpack and crumbled up on the ground around it, right? Saying like, hey, we don't have to do the same projects that we've all done for 20, 30, 40, 50 years that have been passed down generation after generation, but we can talk, uh, we can create projects and do social studies and integrate it in a way which is culturally relevant for our student population today. And so um, it's, it's a powerful read. And I think it's a book that's going to change a lot of people's thinking about how social studies is taught, uh, certainly in the primary grades, but I think even middle school teachers and high school teachers are going to learn a lot of stuff out of it. I know as a high school teacher, I could have benefited from this book. Um, and so we're pretty, pretty pumped to get this out into the world too. No, and the timing is perfect. We definitely need something like that. And right now, when we're able to try new things, what better time than now? Right now is the time for project-based learning. It's not just something when you're in person. Uh, there are so many educators getting creative, uh, sending home STEM kits, uh, sanitized, of course. Um, you can, there's our buddy, Jesus Huerta. He hooked all of his students up with 3D printers and they're assembling them this week. Wow. They're going to be ready about Friday and they're going to get some hands-on things and they're going to work on developing prosthetic hands for real people in need. Talk about connecting multiple subjects and connecting to your community and being culturally, culturally relevant. Uh, he's doing that. It's amazing work. So I can't wait to hear more about what the authors are doing in the book. Yeah, it's, fan it's a fantastic read. We're pretty, we're pretty excited about it. What are some pieces of advice you would have for educators right now during this time. Uh, I definitely recommend and want all of our listeners to check out uh, your weekly newsletter because I think there are some golden nuggets that they can pick out week to week and find some motivation to keep them going. But uh, generally speaking, what would you say? Yeah, so I recently wrote a blog post that was titled overwhelmed question mark this is for you and it was based on some inspirational words that from jill seiler who just published with us a book called thrive through the five um which is kind of the, the idea is that uh, a lot of teachers love a vast majority of their what they do as educators but there's always going to be that five percent and that five percent is tough and right now, it's probably a lot more than 5%, right? And so how can you get through that so that you can successfully do the, that 95% that you do love about being an educator? And um, she's a superintendent. And one of her pieces of advice, which I think is fantastic, is don't allow yourself to be overwhelmed with all the different things that you have to do and all the different obstacles and challenges that are in front of you. Really go back and focus on, you know what, I just need to find out what's my next best step. That's it. I can release the um, anxiety about mm -hmm. figuring all of this out because nobody can figure this all out. Hey, no one took a course in pandemic pedagogy, right? <laughs> all new for all of us. We are all first-year teachers. We are all first-year principals, first-year superintendents. This is the first time it's been done, right? And so there's no guidebook on it. 
And so we're figuring this all out right now. So don't be overwhelmed with that uncertainty, the unpredictability of what might happen next week, whether it's going to be, whether you're going to be uh, shuttled to all remote or distance or in-person, whatever it might be. What is the next best step that you can take? Take that step. And then now let's figure out the next best step. And so I think this is going to be a year where we can re we're really going to need to focus in on that and understand that change is going to be, um, uh, it, it's, it's inevitable. And um, we're, so we're just going to have to be able to, uh, it, it doesn't have to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. Uh, in, the, in my book I wrote, life isn't 100% or fail. Okay. Too many teachers try to set up a situation where they have to have like 100% engagement from 100% of their students on 100% of the days in order to feel successful. But if you've set up a rubric for success, where that is what you need to feel successful, you have now created a rubric where you're going to have a career of uh, disappointment, right? It's never about perfection. It's always about getting better. And so let's just figure out that next best step. And again, those words, um, the next best step part comes from Jill Seiler and Thrive Through the Five. Also, you mentioned our newsletter. We have to have this thing called the Sunday Seven. Um, that we put out every week where we have different educators. I love what Ray um, Hewitt said. Uh, Ray is co-author of Teach Better and co-author of Teachers Deserve It with Adam Welcome. And she said, you know what? People always say like to give your best every day. Well, but sometimes you can't give your best. And she kind of has this way of reframing that to all that we want from you is today's best. <laughs> what can you give today? Give the, give the best of what you can today. We want today's yes. best. And it might not be as much as yesterday. You might be drained, you might be overwhelmed, and you might not be able to give what you gave yesterday, but you can give us today's best. And so I love how she framed that. And so that's a piece of advice from two of our uh, recent authors. And, you know, that's why I love connecting with these people and helping to amplify their messages because these are just, um, you know, inspirational and, and brilliant people. And we're just very honored to get a chance to work with them. Yeah. And Ray is awesome. By the way, uh, I also like her podcast with Adam Welcome, uh, Teachers Deserve It podcast, and yes. they had on Jesus Huerta, who I mentioned earlier. So check that out as well. Thank you, Dave, for giving us your best today, uh, spending your time with us uh, with the TNT at Tech podcast. Where can our listeners follow you at again? Yeah, so uh, I blog at DaveBurgess.com. You can find all of our business stuff at DaveBurgessConsulting.com. That's where you can sign up for the Sunday 7 and all that. And then on Twitter, I'm at Burgess Dave. My name flipped around to Burgess Dave. Instagram, DBC underscore INC on Instagram. If you follow me there, you might also have to put up with some fitness and running posts and stuff like that, but also a little education too. And so I would love to connect with your listeners. I want to thank you both so much for having me on. Love the podcast. I listened to a few episodes in preparation for this. Love what the two of you are doing. And uh, can't wait to get a chance where we can get past this pandemic and meet face to face again. Yeah, I would love it. I was really looking forward to DBC Con. So uh, any conference uh, you're at, if it's in California or close by, or even if it's abroad, I'm going to try and go. <laughs> where there's a will, there's a way. So uh, we'll be talking again soon, Dave. Thank you again. Absolutely. My pleasure.